Well, growing up, I, I enjoyed watching game shows. I, anyone out here like a game show fan? We got some folks out there? Okay, we got a few, some down here in the front. All right, so glad you guys are down here up front. You'll appreciate this more then. Uh, game shows, I loved watching them. Now I'm talking about Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. I know those are like classics and stuff, and, but Jeopardy was one of those shows that, you know, for me, I just like struggle bus. You know, I just couldn't handle it. It, it, was, it was just hard for me. Uh, Wheel of Fortune was fun, like that, but again, it was always those puzzles, and as a kid, you didn't get it. My mom would be over there, and she'd be like, oh, I know it, I know it, and I'm like, I can't, I can't figure it out. What is TH, and what's that third letter? I don't know, you know, I, I couldn't figure it out. Um, some of you are still trying to figure that TH out. What, what was that word, all right? It's not thy, okay, so there you go. Um, but the game shows I loved the most uh, were, let's see, uh, Price is Right. Oh man, I love The Price is Right. I love that, you know, Barb Barker back in the day and he was just all excited and, and people were running down the aisle down to contestants row, I love that one. Okay, um, let's see, let's see, Press Your Luck. You guys remember Press Your Luck? I don't know how many would really know that one. That one's kind of one of those fringe game shows, but I love the whammies, I love the whammies. I mean, when they got that whammy and they lost all their money, man, that was incredible, I loved it. You know, and I just love watching the little whammy walk across the screen and take their money away. It was cool. Um, and then, probably the one that I loved the most was Let's Make a Deal. Oh, Let's Make a Deal. I always loved when that door opened up and they were thinking they were getting a car or some vault of money or something and there'd be a goat there. You know, I was like, man, that's awesome. You know, those people, you see them, they turned away that cash that the game show host had. I just, I loved it. You know, one of the things about those three shows were a lot of times you had the audience involved. You know, you think of prices right, everybody would be screaming, a dollar, a dollar, right? You know, they'd be trying to help them guess the price of the product or the package that was there. Uh, press your luck, same thing. You know, you'd have them like, oh, do I spin again? Do I not? You know, and, and these people would be like, go, go, you know, and everybody's like cheering them on. Let's make a deal. They'd turn around looking like, help me out, door number one or two or three, which one do I do? Or do I just take the money? And you have all these people just trying to influence this poor soul that was trying to figure out what to do next. And sometimes the audience got it right and sometimes they didn't. But I think we would all agree that those audiences had some great influence on that individual participating in the game. Today we talk about influencers, and usually it's in the realm of, you know, social media, in the realm of YouTube, those kind of influencers where they will promote a product. Uh, you'll have this brief commercial break in the YouTube, and, and they'll have some influencer get on and promote a product. And they're trying to sell, trying to say, hey, I use this, this is something that, you know, I say is good, and because of maybe their influence, their authority, uh, their knowledge, people end up buying the product. You know, in today's culture, being an influencer honestly is quite coveted. It's quite some, a powerful position to have. I think the mistake we often make is to think that we have no influence. I believe everyone here in this room, everybody watching by way of live stream tonight, every one of us has influence. Now, our influence, you know, our sphere of influence, it might be smaller than others. We might have a, uh, a place where it's larger, but every one of us 
has influence. And it can be either a good influence or bad. It can be positive, negative. But we all do have that influence. And let me give you an example just to show that every single one of us does have some sort of influence in our life. Growing up, I was the firstborn. Okay, how many firstborns are out there? Let's see, raise your hand. Nice and high firstborns, all right, all right. You know what it's like. You are your parents' experiment, okay? They're the ones that they they try, they're trying to raise you, and you're the one that they practice on. By the time they get to the last one, we all know as firstborns, the last one is spoiled, the last one gets away with everything, and the last one's probably because your parents are old and they just don't see everything, And so you get really bitter over that, okay? But I'm not bitter about that at all, okay? We'll move forward, okay? But being the firstborn, I was the one that tested the boundaries. I was the one that would often, you know, get in trouble. And then, of course, all my siblings would mark that down. Ooh, don't do what Josh just did. He said that back to mom, and boy, did he get in trouble, you know? And so they learned. I had influence, even though I didn't realize it at the time. I had influence, and it influenced my siblings to make sure they didn't make the same mistakes that I did. They learned that Josh got in trouble for that, and they weren't going to do that. I wonder tonight, just looking, it's us here tonight, Campus Church, Does campus church have influence? I believe we do. I believe everybody does. So even campus church, us as the people of campus church, we have influence. So I was thinking like, what kind of influence do we have in our community? What is that influence even like? I wrote down, are we influencing people for God's kingdom or not. And I said, maybe we should ask this, how can we, this church, this people, how can we influence our community? Tonight, I want to share a message I've entitled, Shine as Lights. Shine as Lights. So take your Bibles, if you will, and let's go look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 18. And I thought tonight as we start this study that what we'd do is we'd read these verses responsively. So I'm going to read verse 12, then you all will read verse 13, we'll go back and forth. Then when we get to verse 18, let's read that verse together and this will... Uh, be our passage, our text for tonight. So Philippians chapter 2, and I will read verse 12, then you all read verse 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, 
neither labored in vain. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. If we as the people of Campus Church are going to positively influence our community, our world for Christ, I see four steps in this passage that I think we need to take if we are going to have the right kind of influence in our community. And I find the first step for us from the verses 12 and 13, where Paul is talking uh, about our salvation. So the first one is this, trust and obey. Trust and obey. I know many of you immediately when you hear that phrase, I mean, you think back to that hymn, don't you? Trust and obey. That hymn is uh, one of those classic ones of the faith. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who trust and obey. You know, that song was inspired one night at one of D.L. Moody's uh, services. He was having some testimonies given and one young man stood up and he began to talk about his salvation and he made this statement and this statement was, I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. It was there that Daniel Towner, who was a song leader for that meeting, that that phrase resonated with him. So he jotted it down, sent it to a pastor friend, and this hymn was written. But trust and obey. I think that's the first step that we have to take. In everything we study about Scripture, we see that it is all about trusting and obeying. We find here in, this, in these two verses, we're seeing kind of this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility or human free will. But we find that both are in complete harmony and are both are equally valid truths, even though we can't fully explain that relationship. This morning, Dr. Amsbaugh talked about the God who created everything, talked about the one who breathed this world into existence. Is God completely in charge of everything? According to the Bible, yes, he is. Isaiah 46 says, remember the former things of old for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God is sovereign. He rules over all things. Do we have uh, have to answer for our choices, our actions? Are we responsible? Do we have this free will? And I would say absolutely. We find that when, uh, when God gave Adam and Eve the ability to choose from all the fruit in the garden. He said, you can freely eat. Galatians 6, 7 tells us, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We have a responsibility. We're not programmed one way or the other. We're not forced to love God. It's we choose to love him. But there is an obvious tension between these two truths, but that tension does not invalidate either truth. God is sovereign over all things, and man is responsible for their actions. 
You see, at our salvation, we see here that verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is the trust. Trust. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We trust that that transformation, that great exchange that happens at that point where we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we find that a change has happened. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 reminds us that faithful is he who calleth you who also will do it, that that process of sanctification, bringing us to the conforming to the image of his son, will be completed. We trust that that's going to happen. We also trust that God redeems even the most terrible moments of our lives. Romans 8.28 mentions, we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We see here that this trust is trusting what God will do. We trust that he will bring us to this point where we'll be able to enjoy all of eternity in his presence. But verse 12 reminds us that we are to work out our salvation. And we do so through his power and through his Holy Spirit. Paul said the just shall live by faith. You know, this is really um, a challenge for us, I think. When we want to live out our faith, how do we do that? When you hear... The just shall live by faith. Well, Ephesians 5, 18 helps us to answer that. It says, by being filled with the Spirit. It's allowing God's Spirit to uh, have control over us and allowing Him to use us to fulfill God's purposes. God has given us exactly what we need to live our faith, but we have to trust and obey. Now, this brings us to another side. We see that tension Okay, again, trust and obey. We, we trust that God's going to work in us to complete his plan for us. Then we understand that we also have to work out our faith, that we have to live our faith. We have to obey his commands. But then there's this point that passivity in Christianity is not acceptable. You understand we can't be passive Christians Again, the, the message is titled, Shine as Light. We can't be passive in shining as light. If we're going to shine as light, we're going to shine as light. We're going to get out there and be as bright as we can. When the, when the night gets darker, we get brighter. Passivity in Christianity is not acceptable. Passivity cancels positive influence. Well, if we don't care about our community, if we don't care about getting out there, if we don't care about being a light in our community, our passivity is going to cancel any positive influence that we're going to have. See, as we each work out our own salvation, God does his work. But how do you respond when God works in your life? When God allows things in your life? Maybe things that you're like, I didn't sign up for this. I wouldn't have written in, that, in my script for my life, you know. But Paul is leading these Christians to consider their response before God. It's almost like Paul kind of understood what was going to come. And so look again at verse 14. It says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. 
The second step we need to take is live in gratitude. Live in gratitude. Let's talk about those two words, okay? Murmurings and disputings. Murmurings is kind of a fun word to say. Let's try that, okay? Say it with me now. Murmurings. Yeah, let's do that again. Real strong, okay? Real low too, okay? Murmurings. Oh yeah, I love that. Don't you? Murmur, 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 murmur. That's, a, it's, that's what it sounds like. And that's literally what the word is. It's just this low mumbling. It's not something that's necessarily audible. But it's this expression that we have, do all things without murmurings. And we've all been there. We get this chore. We get this project. We get this assignment. We get, you know, something given to us. And and we just begin to look at it and go, "Uh uh-uh, no. And we murmur. I don't want to do that. The Apostle Paul then talks about disputing. This is where this is a little bit more of a uh, somewhat of a debate. It's like having this dialogue, if you will, uh, this conversation like, wait a second here. Now, hold on. It shouldn't be this way. You know, I've done this. I've done that. Why am I getting this? You know, and it's interesting to me that Paul in this seeing God work and seeing that we need to work. And now Paul comes here and says, y'all need to live in gratitude. Gratitude shows our gratefulness for God. I want you to think with me for a moment. If you and I go around and we complain, if we murmur, whether it's at work or if we're standing in line at the grocery store and the line's really long and we begin to murmur and complain, Think with me of all those times that we just get really bugged by stuff and and that complaining spirit just comes out. What does that say about our God? What are we saying about our God? I looked to Israel when they complained about God's working in their life. They complained about the food. They didn't have the food that they wanted. Numbers 11 talks about this and the Bible begins and when the people complained it displeased the Lord and the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Now why this response? The psalmist ended up saying uh, in Psalm 106 but uh, they murmured in their tents and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Remember Numbers 11 is three days journey out from Sinai. They've been given the Ten Commandments. You know, they had that that party, that festivity, the worshiping of the golden calf. They had that go on and people were punished and judged. And then they've seen all of this. They've been there for about a year or so. And now they're three days out. The pillar of cloud was leading them by day. They would have it as a pillar of fire at night. Now think with me for a moment. God is leading them. Now, I I don't know about you, but that would be pretty cool to have this cloud that would lead me around and and tell me what I need to be doing next or where I need to be going. I, I mean, that would be very helpful in life to have something like that. Well, they had it. God's very present presence represented by that pillar. And yet they murmured. Right there in the shadow of the almighty, they murmured. 
I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, wow. And yet then I think to myself and go, whoa. When I complain, he is here. He doesn't miss anything. As I went through this, I, I, was, I was like, oh, Lord, I complained so much. Lord, you've led me all along this way. And then I complain. There's another, uh, through my devotions, I've been working through the book of Job. And the book of Job really demolishes the prosperity gospel. Um, you know, if these bad things happen to you. You must be hiding some sin in your life. If you do what is right, only good things will come your way. All that is just kind of annihilated with the book of Job. Uh, we find that Job, again, was this uh, man that was perfect. He was upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. Uh, Job 1.22 says, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So he had all this terrible tragedy happened, loss of much of his possessions, his family. In Job 23, Job says this, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, speaking about God, that I might even come to his seat. I would order my cause before him. Think right there, disputing. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. You know what Job's doing? Job is like acting like his own lawyer here and making this case for his innocence. He's saying, you know, God, this is all wrong. What is going on is all wrong. But then God appears to Job in the whirlwind. And then here's what Job answers, the judge of all the earth. Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. And what shall I answer thee? I lay my hand. My hand upon my mouth. Now keep that, I, that phrase, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Basically, he's not going to say anything. And then Job answered later, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Sometimes we take our inner lawyer, and we begin to dispute. God, this is not right. I make every service at Campus Church. I come and I serve and volunteer at Campus Church. Uh, Lord, I give. God, this is not right. I'm innocent. Much like Job, we begin to have this disputing. Our inner lawyer makes a case for our innocence. But we forget that God is sovereign. That God is the one that rules over all things. And even the worst moments of our life, God can redeem and bring good from them. He can take those times and use them in such a way uh, that can be used for his glory. See, Paul acknowledges both God's sovereignty and human 
responsibility, our free will, working in perfect harmony. But as God works, how do I respond? If we like how God works, we rejoice, right? I mean, if, man, God, you just gave me a blessing. Uh, I got this extra money. I got this possession. I mean, God, you gave me that promotion. I just, all this, man, this is great. But if we don't like how God works, do we murmur? Do we dispute? Does our inner lawyer come out? And for me, that's where I wrote down, man, I'm convicted. Because my inner lawyer loves to get up and say, God, this is not right. I love to, be, to do that, to dispute it. And then I forget that he is so much more greater than I. Things too wonderful for me. I need to put my hand to my mouth. I need to not say a word. The Apostle Paul had his own struggles. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, maybe just across the page for you in verses 7 through 8. He says this, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless I account all things but lost for the excellency of knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but done that I may win Christ. All those things that he gained, all those things that he lost, he didn't complain about. He didn't grumble. If we go to Philippians chapter 4 and look at verses 11 and 13, we see, not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The Apostle Paul did not dispute, he did not murmur. He chose gratitude over grumbling. And then I think that the greatest example of this is Jesus. And Paul in the previous verses of chapter 2 there, he presents Jesus as that supreme example. Look with me at verses 7 and 9. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death, even the death of the cross. You know, Jesus Christ did not open his mouth. The prophet Isaiah says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Peter said, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Jesus did not dispute emptying himself of those divine privileges. He went about his father's business with no murmuring or disputing. He is our example. I don't know what is going on in your life. I don't know what challenges you may be facing at work. I don't know what the days are going to hold for you. But this I know that for us, we should not murmur or dispute. Jesus is our perfect example. And we ought to give thanks for God's working in our lives. Even at the Last Supper, when Jesus was surrounded by his disciples and they were taking the, the, the bread and the cup, 
When Jesus took the bread, you know what the Bible says he did? He broke it and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body. This do ye in remembrance of me. He gave thanks for what was about to come. He lived in gratitude. As we trust and obey, we ought to live in gratitude for God's working. And then we need to shine as lights in the world. Our third step, shine as lights in the world. This past week, our summer interns are here. You guys will uh, meet them here in, uh, um, in the service. We'll have an introduction for them soon. But this last week, one of the projects they had was cleaning our Christmas Eve candles. So those of you that are here for our Christmas Eve service, this is uh, a beautiful service. And we had it here in the Dale Horton Auditorium. And watching those candles just light up, it's, it, it's amazing. We dim the lights, and it's pretty impressive to see how much light is given. But those guys, they went through, and, and they got them all cleaned and, and prepped for the next time. But as, as I was looking at that, I was just thinking how one little light could just change the darkness in a room. One light. You know, light influences everything it touches. The Apostle Paul says we're supposed to shine as lights in this world. We ought to be the best light for Jesus as we can in this world. He told the Philippians in chapter 1, he said this, he challenged them with these words, only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. To his disciples, Jesus told them, you need to be salt and light. And he made this statement. He said, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. He's calling you and me to be light to this world. So we don't hide in our homes. We, we don't hide from our community. We get out there and we light. We be light. We light it up. That is what we're supposed to do. That you may be what? Blameless and harmless, the sons of God, being who we are, morally pure, living clean lives, having a no rebu rebuke, this idea of honesty, that there's nothing sticking to us, that we don't have anything there for them to pick at. We are being the light that we are supposed to, holding fast the word of life. You know, light reveals truth. I get it. The world around us, uh, Paul said, even in their day, it's crooked and perverse. And even more so in recent days for us, we've seen how this world distorts truth. They try to change definitions. They go about in such depravity. And honestly, it can be frustrating. It can be very frustrating for us where we just want to kind of like circle the wagons, if you will, and just, you know, us four, no more kind of mentality. We're all just going to huddle together. But that's not what we're called to be. We're not called to take that light and put it under a bushel. Yes, our hearts break, but the darker the night, the brighter the light. 
Boy, we need to get out there. You know, they're not told to shine. They're already doing that. They're the light of the world. The challenge was to let that light shine out unhindered. Boy, get out there. This church needs to be a ministry here in this community, to be a light that contrasts the world's distortions, depravity. You and I can go out there and be that light. We can go out there and light up our world for the Lord Jesus Christ. And for many of us, it might be that, you know what, I just don't like that. I don't want to do that. But Jesus Christ left you and me here. He put us in this time in human history for such a time as this. He knew what our days would be like. He knew the challenges that would come. And this he did for us. John 17, 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Don't run or hide from being light. We find here one more step for us. As we trust and obey, we live in gratitude, we shine as uh, lights in this world. And again, that's going to help us be a bright light within our community and our world. And now let's just look at these last two verses here, uh, verses 17 and 18. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Well, th- that fourth and final step is simply this, that you and I should rejoice together. We should rejoice together. You know, there ought to be joy between you, between me, as we carry out God's work. Boy, this church, boy, there should be happy, joyful people. When we leave this place tonight, there should be such joy. The Apostle Paul here in this, he's talking um, about this idea of uh, being a drink offering. In the Old Testament, they would take the main sacrifice, the animal sacrifice, they put that on there. Then they would make this little mixture of oil and some uh, flour and some spices. They would take that and they would pour that on. The main sacrifice was that that animal that was brought. The drink offering was just kind of the, the topping, if you will. It was not as important. The Apostle Paul was saying, I'm that drink offering. I'm the one being poured out, man. Your work, your sacrifice, your service of your faith, man, I joy. And if I am just simply that drink offering, if that's all it is, then that's great. So often we want to be that top dog. So often we want to be the one that God gives the blessing to and gives the stories to. Oh, quite honestly, we just need to be the drink offering. We all have that attitude. You know what? I'm not here to try to be the biggest sacrifice, to be the main sacrifice. I just want to serve my Lord, and I want to do so with joy. Well, what does that look like for you and for me? When we're talking about having this joy of rejoicing uh, together, rejoicing in God's work together, What does that look like? The Apostle Paul used that idea of that drink offering that, hey, I don't care what part I am. I'm just here to rejoice and joy with you as God works. But what does that look like for you and for me? Well, Philippians 
uh, 2 and verses 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul says this, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but then in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. If Campus Church, if you and I carried out those two verses, what an incredible influence, an incredible light we would be in our community, in our church. Some of you are getting ready to embark on um, helping out with a camp this summer. Some of you are starting new jobs. Some of you are getting ready to return back to work. But if you and I would follow these four steps, if we would trust and obey, if we would live in gratitude, boy, if we would shine as lights, even in this dark world, rejoicing together in how God is working in each one of our lives, imagine with me what influence we would have. Imagine what would change within this church body, in this church family, if you and I carried out what the Apostle Paul instructed the church at Philippi. Imagine with me what could be done. You know, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about him. If we would make that our attitude in the days to come, this church would influence this community and our world for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that we would.